in many of my counseling conversations over the years, it's, it's not unusual to hear something like this from a person who's been through hard times. Well, yes, that was a hard situation. And I wish it hadn't happened to me. But there are so many other people who have been through far worse than I have. And my response to that statement is usually, okay, you're probably, <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. It's probably true, but how is that relevant to your situation? For them, the relevance, I think, is this. If other people are carrying on and apparently not complaining about far worse experiences they've endured, why should this person act like their own suffering is a big deal? Maybe something like that, right? Do we tell ourselves things like that? Oh, why should I be complaining? Maybe this is not a big deal. Boy, I've got it good compared to such and such or that person that I saw on television or the person I heard about the other day, a friend of a friend. I think that is the reasoning. So maybe they are thinking that they're wrongly exaggerating their feelings. They're wrongly exaggerating the soul-crushing feelings that they're battling with day in and day out. Maybe they should just get over it. Maybe they should just forgive and move on. Maybe they should just give it to God or or embrace some other cozy platitude, right, offered by somebody, well-intentioned, but given by somebody who says, you know what, you just need to get past that and move on. I mentioned this kind of rationalizing this morning because this morning we're going to talk about someone who has been through far worse than you and me. I can say that definitively. Someone who has been far worse, through far worse than you and me, his name was Job. You're looking at the book right now that bears his name. And with the same counsel that I've offered to others in the past, it's important for you to know that the extreme suffering that characterized an almost unthinkably painful season in Job's life, that suffering does not minimize your own. Just because someone else has been through far worse doesn't somehow make your suffering better or easier. Adversity is adversity. And whatever measurement you want to place on it, it has to be acknowledged, it has to be faced, and it has to be processed in a healthy way. That's just how we work as people. When you deny that, you find people who grow hard and callous with the walls as high as the Empire State Building, World Trade Center, whatever tall thing, right? Dubai, what's the one? The Burj Khalifa in Dubai, right? That high, that's where they've kind of come to when they've built these walls around themselves, this shell around themselves. They've become bitter. They've become angry. They're lashing out at others. We have to acknowledge and face and process these things in a healthy way, whatever measurement we place on our adversity. So instead of their experiences, these people who have been through far worse, instead of their experiences shutting us down or shutting us up, those far worse sufferers might be able to actually 
teach us something about how to accept hard times, about how to go through hard times, not simply survive them, but accept them, or as we'll see this morning, receive them. I believe Job can help us in precisely this way. So look with me at verses 9 and 10 of Job chapter 2. I think you're there by now. Job chapter 2. So we're entering 30 verses into this book in Job 2, 9 and 10. Because we are, it's critical that we review something about what happened. You read that in the reading plan this week. Um, You've probably read Job before or heard it taught before, so you probably know this. But we've got to understand what's happened up to this point. Chapter 1, verse 1, you can see it, flip the page. The book introduces us to this man, Job, describing him how? As a man who was blameless and upright. It's not an exaggeration. He was blameless and upright. He feared God and he turned away from evil. In light of this, the following verses tell us something about, right after 1-1, you keep going into the chapter 1, those verses tell us something about the prosperity that he enjoyed. Prosperity that, if you know anything about Job from the book, prosperity that Job certainly would have recognized as God's blessings to him and his family. He wouldn't say, I'm just one lucky guy, right? Things went my way. No, he acknowledged that it was God who had blessed him in that way. In fact, he was so prosperous, he was so blessed that chapter 1, verse 3 calls him the greatest of all the people of the East. But starting in chapter 1, verse 6, a dark shadow is cast over Job's life. And that shadow results in catastrophic loss. What is that loss? All 11,000 of Job's animals, his livestock, are either killed or stolen. All of his numerous servants, except four, are now dead. And the lives of his own children, seven sons and three daughters, those lives have been snuffed out when the house in which they feasted collapsed on top of them. And all of this happened on the same day. In just a matter of hours. But that's not the end of the story. That's not the end of the story. Probably within days of this unthinkable loss, Job has been struck physically. He has been struck with painful sores, with boils all over his body. He's miserable. And as we transition into this main text... Chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Verse 8 tells us this about Job. Try to imagine this. He took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Now, with that pitiful image in your mind, listen to where the story goes from here. Chapter 2, verse 9. Then his wife, his dearly beloved, right? His precious soulmate his wife said to him do you still hold fast to your integrity curse god and die but he said to her you speak as one of the foolish women would speak shall we receive good from god and shall we not receive evil in in all this job did not sin with his lips Now, think with me about how 
Think about the responses here, right? Think about, number one, how Job's wife responds to these horrible events, and in contrast, how Job responds. They're kind of set against each other here, right? These two different responses present to us this morning two different ways of of handling hard, hurtful, horrible circumstances in our lives. Now again, you don't have to suffer like Job to learn from Job. You don't have to suffer like Job to learn from Job. Some of you have suffered immensely. Some of you have faced unimaginable loss. You've experienced unthinkable pain. But all of us go through hard times, don't we? Some of you are feeling that even this morning, those hard times. You're right in the middle of them. A fractured marriage, a difficult boss or coworker, a closed off child, unyielding anxiety, financial uncertainty, lingering shame, crippling loneliness, unresolved anger, chronic illness, a a deep sense of purposelessness. If that's you, then let me urge you to resist temptations right now to minimize what you're going through in light of Job's tsunami of suffering that he's just endured. And the temptations in your mind, right? Maybe something the pastor just said connected with where I'm at, but eh, it's not a big deal. Don't do that. Don't do that this morning. Acknowledge adversity as adversity. And let's learn from a sufferer like Job. So, adversity is adversity. God's given us his word in order to acknowledge and face and process that adversity like we talked about. And he's given us his word so that we can Acknowledge and face and process this adversity in a way that advances our good and brings glory to him. Do you believe that? You can face your adversity in a way that advances your eternal good and brings glory to God. That's what his word is revealing to us this morning. Does that make sense? Okay. Let's first look back at chapter 2, verse 9, and think about Job's wife. I think what we learn from her response here, I think I've got some slides up for you, is that when you suffer, number one, don't curse God's character. Don't curse God's character. If you haven't already, think about Job's wife. Think about what this woman has endured. Apart from the boils... She's suffered just as Job has suffered. Everything's gone. Her possessions, her servants, her children, all gone. She is undoubtedly deep in the grip of grief and anger and confusion. How could you not be? I think we understand that. But instead of coming alongside of her afflicted husband, instead of them leaning on one another in this time, instead of the difficulty bringing them together as a married couple, she's talking here about integrity, specifically his integrity. You see that? Verse 9. But why is she talking about integrity? Why is she asking this question? Well, as we will see with Job's three friends who show up, as we will see with them, I think this question, her question about his integrity, reveals something very important about her theological beliefs, what she believes about God. 
as with probably most worshipers of God at this time. We don't know when Job lived. We don't. Probably closer to the time of Abraham, even far back like that. The book's probably a little bit later. It's the telling of a story, right? Nobody was a, had an MP3 recorder going, oh, Eliphaz is saying something now. Oh, Bildad is saying something. Let me get that over there. You can tell the book's written in a poetic way, right? But it's based on this real story. It's a spirit-inspired story based on a real man who went through these things named Job. So as we look back at this, we see that Job, this man who was great in the East, his friends come alongside of him. And as with most of these worshipers of God at this time, Job's wife would agree with what one of Job's friends would declare two chapters later. This is what Eliphaz says in chapter 4, verse 8. As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Now, just uh, just uh, backwards, right? What is, what is it called? Uh, uh, where you backwards, reverse engineer. Reverse engineer that statement. If Job is going through trouble, right? If he's reaping trouble, what does that mean about what he's plowed? What does that mean about what he's been sowing? Or as the Apostle Paul would, would write many centuries later, he put it this way, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that he will also reap. So Job's three friends, Job's wife, I believe, is coming with this same perspective. So what Job's wife is asking him in this question here in chapter 2, verse 9, this question about his integrity, she's really asking him this, do you still hold fast to the idea that you didn't bring this evil upon us? You see, she's blaming Job. She blames Job for what's happening here. She's blaming him for in some way provoking God to wrath. What else would explain this catastrophic, unthinkable tragedy that they're now enduring, that they've endured in one day in a matter of hours, everything gone, even fire from heaven being talked about in chapter 1? What would explain it if not the wrath of God? Do you still hold fast to this notion that you've done nothing to elicit this, to provoke this from God? As you continue in the book, Job's three friends are trying to get him to admit to something similar. Right? Job, you gotta, (laughs) you gotta call a spade a spade, bro, right? You gotta, you gotta admit to this. You gotta own up to this. You gotta confess. You gotta, you know, look what's going on. That's what they're doing. But it's abundantly clear from these opening chapters that Job is not suffering because he's done something wrong. That's not what's happening here. Job's wife and Job's friends are mistaken. God will call them out at the end of the book on this. You three have not spoken what is right concerning my servant Job. They're wrong. They're just plain wrong. But how should we understand, right? How should we understand the wife's final words here? Shockingly, she encourages him to do what? Yeah, to curse God and die. 
But why is that? What is she saying here? Now, there are some commentators, this is interesting, there are some commentators that believe that out of pity, out of pity for her husband, she's encouraging Job to seek a kind of divine euthanasia. That's what she's doing here, right? She's just saying, in essence, since it's clear that God is set against you, right? You've done something to provoke the wrath of God. He said against you, why don't you just put yourself out of your misery by cursing God and thus you're going to be ensuring your own demise. Boom, zap, he's going to be gone. Some say that's what she's doing here. I think the context of the first two chapters actually confirms the real evil behind her words. Not pity, not mercy, but evil. In her grief and anger... She is not wanting a merciful end for Job. No, she wants him to disavow this God to whom he clings, and then she wants him to die. How does the book, the opening chapters, how do they confirm such a dark motivation? Because what Job's wife is seeking here is precisely what Satan is seeking in chapter 1, verse 11, and chapter 2, verse 5. You can scan back and look at those. Chapter 1, verse 11. Chapter 2, verse 5. A few minutes ago, I I simply described Job's woes, his catastrophe, this tragedy, as a dark shadow that was cast over his life. That wasn't the full story, was it? It was was a dark shadow, but we get more details than that. Uh, Chapter 1, chapter 2 revealed the source of this shadow. The adversary. Just a word. It's just a word. It means adversary. The adversary... In Hebrew, the word is Satan. The Satan shows up. The adversary shows up here. And what is the, what is the goal of this adversary? This spiritual being is intent on proving something about Job. What does he want to prove about Job? He wants to prove that Job serves God, not because God is God and worthy of worship and service, but because of the blessings Job receives from God. That's it. We call that a shallow faith, right? It's a shallow faith. It's a transactional faith. I worship you and I serve you as long as you bless me and take care of me. As long as you do keep up your end. That's what this adversary is bringing, trying to prove. Is calling God out on and saying, this is why he serves you in this way. He says, take away these gifts and Job will repudiate the giver. This supernatural adversary shares his one goal with God. Chapter 1, verse 11, chapter 2, verse 5. He will curse you to your face. Isn't that what the wife wanted him to do? Whether it's Satan or Job's wife, anyone who wants another individual made in the image of God to curse God has to be in a very dark place. And it absolutely confirms a deficit, a distortion in terms of God's character. Talking about Job's wife. There's a deficit or distortion of God's character. Brother, sister, friend, 
you may not hear the voice of Job's wife. If you do come and talk with me, we'll set up a counseling session right away. If you're hearing the voice of Job's wife, you may not hear, you won't hear the voice of Job's wife, but there will be voices in your life when you go through hard times. There will be voices like this in your life when you go through hard times. Maybe those voices are on the outside, but definitely you will have voices on the inside. And those voices will be calling to you and they will be calling you to distort and to doubt. They'll call you to distortion and doubt in regard to God's character. Always. Regularly. They will do this. See? See, God doesn't care about you. Where is he? Where is he as you suffer? Why are things still the same in your life? Why isn't it getting better? Is this what a loving father does? His patience does have an end, you know. He does have more important things to do with more important people. He told you to get your act together. You must have done something. Right? There's that voice. Whether it's spoken audibly by someone or that voice is in you. Right? You may not have somebody as as severe or extreme as Job's wife. Right? What are you going through? Right? Kevin, what are you going through? Lorraine, what are you going through? Curse God and die. You know, you're like, I don't think you, you probably have people like that in your life. But you will have these voices. And they will be tempting you toward distortion and doubt in terms of God's character. They can be, even though they're not as extreme as Job's wife, these voices can be, they can be just as destructive in their satanic intent to distort God's character and drive you towards doubt. But as we see in verse 10, Job rejects his wife's talk, doesn't he? He labels it. He rejects it as foolishness, what she's saying. But what does Job do instead? Okay, here's a second response. What does Job do? What we learn from his response is that when you suffer, take a look, number two, do cling to God's character. Do cling to God's character. Don't curse God's character, cling to God's character. The rhetorical question that Job launches back at his wife, it also speaks volumes about his theological beliefs. Did you know the hard times, how you suffer through your hard times reflect your theological beliefs? Do you recognize that? How you go through difficult times and to what you turn, how you, the things that you turn to, the way you cope and, and handle it, reflects your theological beliefs, what you believe about God. Right? It, 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 invariably, it does. Um, that not meant to shut you down. It's meant to help you observe and say, what do, I, what do I really believe? And if I believe this in my head, but it's not taking place in my heart and my actions, what's the impediment? And really seeking out godly counsel to help you kind of work through the things you say you believe, and yet maybe they don't translate into your life. So the same thing is happening here. We are seeing what Job believes 
about God. We're seeing this in real time working itself out as he's enduring this horrible, catastrophic season of suffering in his life. Do cling to God's character. So he asks this question, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Now, for us, the word evil, anytime you use that word, it has decidedly moral overtones. Hard to escape that. The Hebrew word here is more like our generic word bad. That's a good one. Bad. Bad can be, it can, it can be all sorts of things, right? You can have a, you could have a, a bad blender, <laughs> right? It's, this is a bad piece of equipment. It's nothing, nothing, you're not saying anything moral about that. You're just saying it's not working the way it's supposed to be working. So think of this word bad. Given what we're talking about, talking about here, what Job is talking about, that is his loss, his health, for example, a better translation of what Job is saying here is, shall we receive prosperity from God and not adversity as well? That's what he's asking her. Shall we receive prosperity from God and not adversity as well? But, but notice the language he's using. He's not talking about avoiding adversity, not denying adversity, not despising adversity, not wielding adversity as a weapon against others, but receiving it from God. Do you receive hard times from God? That's what Job's encouraging us. That's what the Spirit of God is encouraging us to do in light of Job's example. Men and women all over the world throughout history, they are glad to receive good things and happy times and affirming relationships from God. No problem there. They're glad to receive those things from God. And they're pleased in that to affirm in many, many cases, they're pleased to affirm God's goodness when life is good. But when life isn't good, when life is not good, when it's far from good, has God somehow ceased to be good? Is that what happened? You caught him on a bad day. He woke up on the wrong side of his heavenly bed. Is that what's happened? Job would argue no. In fact, Job's three friends who come to minister him, I think they would also argue no. But they would argue that God is also just, something that Job would affirm, that God is just. And if a person is clearly suffering under such extreme misfortune as in this circumstance, it has to be God's hand of justice responding to some transgression, some iniquity in that person's life, right? That's the only way we reconcile for them God's goodness and God's justice. Again, we receive God's goodness, we affirm it when life is good, when we're experiencing good. But when life is not good, for these guys, it means God is, since he's also just, this must be God's justice lashing out at you in light of some sin, some iniquity. But Job, friends, Job has a clear conscience here. Job has a clear conscience. He knows he is not perfect. Job never claims to be perfect, but he does have a clear conscience. 
as the beginning of the book reveals, Job is a man who offers sacrifice. He knows what sacrifice is for. He offers sacrifice. He even offers sacrifice when it may not be necessary, just in case. He's that kind of guy in offering sacrifice. Not only for himself, but also for his children. Job is not a perfect man, but he has a clear conscience. As the end of the book reveals, Job is a man who repents when he needs to repent. You'll read that this week. He's a man with a clear conscience. No one said he's perfect, but he has a clear conscience. When he needs to repent, he'll repent. When he needs to confess, he'll confess. When he needs to offer sacrifice, he will offer sacrifice. Therefore, as the response in 2.10 implies, God remains good even when a man like Job suffers, even when the origin of that, the origin of that adversity is a mystery. God is still good. The other thing that's clear from Job's response is that God is in control. God's goodness, God is in control, something we often refer to as God's sovereignty, like a sovereign, like a king would reign, have authority over his kingdom. Same is true of God, the king of all creation, the king of the universe. So both prosperity, as we see in 2.10, as we see from the opening chapters, both prosperity and adversity are in God's hands. Though a heavenly adversary is, deter- is, is determined to prove the shallowness of Job's faith, that adversary can only do so with God's permission. True? Yeah, we see that. Therefore, if God is good and not evil, and if Job's suffering is not the result of divine wrath against his sin, and if God is truly in control, then Job can accept that God has a good purpose in his suffering. Do you see how we just got there? Same principles being affirmed, even in Job's words. God is always good. He's not evil. This is not justice against me. Therefore, if he's good and I'm suffering and he's in control, he has a purpose in this suffering. Job repeatedly demonstrates this same fact Right? In the book, opening chapters, he honors God because of who God is, not what God gives. He honors God because of who God is, not what he gives. How many of us, if we went through what Job went through, would say, oh, Clearly, this whole God thing is not working for me, right? If there is a God, doesn't care about me. Do you see what we do there? We set ourselves up as the measure and the standard, don't we? We set ourselves up and say, oh, this is how it must be if God is good. This is what it must look like for God to bless me and take care of me. It has to look this way. And then we indict God in our own court. We indict God and say, you're not meeting. (laughs) You're not acting like you're supposed to be acting. I remember sitting having a conversation with a young woman who's a teenager after the divorce of her parents. And she was a confessed atheist. 
And I pressed her and pressed her. After time talking with her, I wasn't being, you know, insensitive or unkind. This is after getting to know her and talking with her and gently kind of pressing, pressing and pressing and pressing and pressing about God, why she did not believe he existed. And it finally came out, well, he doesn't exist because he let my parents get divorced. Hmm. You don't believe in God because it didn't, something didn't happen the way you thought it would. So she was mad at a God who didn't exist. Right? She was upset with a God who didn't exist. And she hadn't worked through this pain, this, this, this struggle that she was facing. But Job, it's not about what God gives. It's about who God is. Look back at Job's response to his catastrophic loss in chapter 1. This is his initial response. Look at chapter 1, verses 20 through 22. This is when he first heard the news on that one day of all the suffering, the loss of all his property, the loss of all his servants, the loss of all his children. It says, Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. That's what Job did. He worshipped God. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb. Nothing. I had nothing. Naked shall I return. I'm not taking anything with me. Yahweh gave. Yahweh has taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. In all this, chapter 1, verse 22, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. He has a clear conscience. And his response to his physical infirmity, we saw it in chapter 2, verse 10, didn't we? It makes the same point. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And the writer draws the same conclusion. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. He's speaking the truth. Now, Satan was very frustrated, obviously. <laughs> he, Job, in his confessions, is totally ruin, ruining Satan's plot. <laughs> Nothing is working out the way that the adversary wants it to work out. Job is continuing to show, no surprise to God, right? God knew exactly how Job would respond in the midst of this. But... We have to ask, how did Job receive all this from God, right? We're looking at his response. We're trying to learn from his response. How did Job receive this from God? How did he receive it as from God? Take a look on the screen. With attention to his own conscience, firm faith in God's goodness, and a submissive spirit before God's sovereignty. Let's say that again. Let's think, let me go through that again. Think about that in terms of application as you go, go through hard times, as you're asking God to help you and guide you through those difficult times. He's saying, give attention to your conscience. Firm, have firm faith. Trust me in my goodness and have a submissive spirit before my sovereignty. Are these your theological beliefs? I believe God wants you to, to wrestle with that this morning. Are these your theological beliefs? That you're giving attention to your conscience, you have firm faith in God's goodness, and a submissive spirit before God's sovereignty. If they are not, are you praying to this end? Are you asking brothers and sisters for prayer and for help to this end? Now, as the rest of the book goes on in Job, we're just talking about the first two chapters. So it's like, what is it, 42? 42 chapters long? Something like that. 43? Uh, it's, it's long. 
So what's the rest of this book about? Well, in the rest of the book, you're going to see not only these three friends, but you're going to see Job struggle and fail to maintain this posture that we're talking about right here. How comforting for us, isn't it? To know a man like Job, who when you see and hear his story, you're like, what did this guy go through? And his first response is worship, humility and worship. And you go, oh, wow, that's not me. <laughs> that doesn't sound like what I would do. In fact, last week when I, when I hit that speed bump <laughs> in life, that wasn't what I did. <laughs> you know, I turned to every worldly solution. I turned to every, every bit of uh, self-confidence or strength. And I was going all every which way, right? But I wasn't looking up. I was struggling in that way. Well, guess what? The rest of the book is about Job's struggle. He does struggle. If you read chapter 10 last week, do you remember chapter 10 in Job? What was he asking God? What was he saying to God? He was saying, do you think the designs of the wicked are good? Is that what you're doing? Right? You want to bless the evil person, the suffering? Like he's starting to question God in this and saying, what are you doing? I trust there's a mystery here. There's a good purpose, but I need to know it. You need to come and tell me what it is. Right? He starts, he starts to get very uppity with God with his, you know, as he's going through this. And you'll see that as you're going through what God will confront him on in the end. But reassuring to us to know that this struggle is continuing on. God will, as you'll see this week in your reading, God will confront him. And because of God's compassion and mercy, God will grow him as a result of these hard times. He will. He does. Do you trust that God is doing the same in your life this morning? Through your hard times, is he doing the same thing because of his compassion and mercy working in you to grow you? That there's a good purpose for the difficulty, adversity that you're facing? If by his grace you are giving attention to your own conscience. Sometimes we give attention to our conscience and we see that God's discipline is at work in our life. Right? There may be sin that we need to repent from, we need to turn away from. Uh, there may be some discipline that God is bringing on us. It may not be clear, and we may have a clear conscience, but we're, at least we're giving attention to our conscience in the midst of what's happening. You may be doing that. You may be exercising firm faith in God's goodness. You may be nurturing a submissive spirit before God's sovereignty. If you are, then you, like Job, will be able to truly receive adversity from God. Not deny it, not try to distract yourself, not use it as a weapon to blame other, you know, blaming other people for what you're going through, but you can actually receive the adversity. Just as you receive all the good things from God. In fact, brothers and sisters, we, those of you sitting in this room who have been purchased by our Lord Jesus, you are far better equipped than even Job to accept hard times in this way. Do you believe that? You are better equipped than Job to do this. Why? Because, take a look at these verses, through Christ's blood we have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Hebrews 10.22 Because in Jesus the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Titus 3.4 And appeared in a way it never had before. 
Because through Jesus, we have this promise regarding God's sovereignty. All things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. You see, we have far better promises than Job, don't we? We have far greater revelation than Job had. We possess the spirit of the living God poured out upon us, given to us as a deposit, as a down payment. All of this by His grace. We have these things. We are better equipped to accept these hard times. There will always be other voices in our hard times. Voices tempting us toward distortion and doubt. But what God has confirmed about His character through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, those should be our anchor. Helping us to to stand. Helping us to remain steady in the midst of the storms that we go through. Preach the gospel to one another. Rehearse the gospel with yourself. Speak the truth and love to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. When you hear somebody's going through something, they say, would you pray for me? I'm going through this. Not only stop and pray for them right there, but speak the truth and love to them. Say, I'm so glad you shared this with me. I'm thankful that you entrusted me with this difficult time that you're going through. Can I pray for you? But I also want to encourage you. Christ is with you. He has overcome the world. He has, he has secured promises for you. And I want to remind you of those. He's going to cause all things to work for together, together for your good. Remember what our Lord Jesus said? I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That we're ministering Christ to one another in that very way. In the hard times. There's always going to be these other voices tempting us to these things. We come back to the gospel. We come back to Christ. Our sure and steady anchor in the storm. In the book of James, the writer uses Job to call Christian believers like us. He uses Job to encourage this steadiness, this steadfastness in us in the midst of our suffering. May God also encourage us through Job's example and the encouragement of James in light of our hope in Christ. Let me finish with those, word from, those words from James. There are four Christian believers like you. There are words to you, just as James wrote almost 2,000 years ago, to Christians who were going through hard times. And he wanted them, like Job, to receive these hard times from God, to accept these hard times, to understand them in light of the goodness of God, in light of the sovereignty of God. Let me read those and finish with those. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. There's our hope in Christ. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he, until it receives, he receives the early and the late rains, or it, the ground receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, sisters, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. The Lord's at hand, he said. 
as an example of suffering and patience. Brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, says James, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.